which is a very, very famous chapter in, in the book. So I'm excited to be jumping in. Let me pray, and we'll begin. Abba, Father, thank you for unfailing love and love that is undeserved, and yet you are so kind and abundant in mercy, and your love reaches to the heavens. Thank you for this kindness. Um, pray for Josh Mayfield and his family over his dad and bring healing to Brian. Thank you for his life and, and his mom, Linda. We do love you and thank you. Bless tonight in your name, amen. Okay, Isaiah, we're starting at chapter 6, and um, it's really fascinating. So before we jump straight in, a little bit of a, a review on how to interpret Scripture. As I've commented several times through the years here, back in the 80s when I was in seminary, Steve Wilkes, one of the professors, said there's at least at that time over 20,000 registered denominations. You've got Southern Baptist, Missionary Baptist, Primitive Baptist, Free Will Baptist, Missionary Baptist, uh, uh, yeah, Missionary, there's like an American Baptist, and you know, I know there's several more. So today, I have no idea. Is it 70,000? I have no idea. 25,000? A lot. And the questions that come out of that kind of data is they can't all be right. <laughs> Someone's got to be wrong. You know, uh, where one denomination says Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, nobody gets to God except, you know, God the Father, except through the Son, Jesus. Then what do you do with the Unitarian Universalist Church, which is right on Reservoir, three minutes from our house, and they teach that all seven major bodies of religious writings are valid for your faith and growth. So you can turn to the writing of the Muslims, you can turn to the writings of the Hindus, you can turn to the writings of uh, the Christians, the writings of the Jews, and I could go on and on. You can, you can turn to this great body of religious literature and you can find your way. And all ways are just as valid as the others. Well, you can't, I mean, that in itself is a massive contradiction. So we can all be right. So um, let's talk about how you interpret scripture. So if you could come up with some rules so that when you go to read scripture, you're going to put on these rules like lenses and go, aha, I'm going to read scripture in a fair and reasonable way. What are the rules? What would you say the rules are? If you're going to read scripture and be responsible with that, what are you going to do? Don't ever want to answer it once. Yes, ma'am? Question. Oh, question? Question everything? Sure, we should question. I, I, I mean, maybe not everything, but, you know, ask some questions. Don't be afraid to question. Yeah. Be like yeah. a Berean, right? You, you beat me to it. Act 17. Be like the Bereans. Go and research to see if this is so. Yeah, exactly. How about this? Can the scriptures mean today what they did not mean then? Is that possible? Can scripture mean today something it did not mean then? For example, John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and life. Nobody comes to the Father except for me. Can we derive some kind of meaning from that that John was clueless about? Is it possible to do that? Can you do that? Make the scripture say what the author never intended? Is that a good rule? Not at all. So kind of the rule of rules, the king of rules is 
the scriptures can only mean today what the author originally intended. That's a major rule. You can't make the scriptures say what you want them to say. You have to learn to accept the teaching of God's word for what it is. Here's another one. Um, you always have to consider context. What's the context? You know, for example, if the scripture says in, in 2 Corinthians 11 that I do not want a woman to talk in church, okay, well, what does that mean? And if you read the greater context of scripture, you understand that that's actually not what Paul was saying. Paul was saying, I don't want anyone to disrupt church, woman or otherwise. No one's allowed to upset church. No one. Because in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, I permit a woman to prophesy in church. Well, that's a speaking gift. So how can he say in one instance a woman can prophesy in church, but another instance I will not allow a woman to talk in church, speak in church. So context is everything. You've got to learn to deal with context. <clears throat> Sometimes you have to deal with word meetings, and, and unfortunate, unfortunately that's tough because we don't speak these languages. We, we don't have Hebrew-shaped brains or Greek-shaped brains or Aramaic-shaped brains. We don't, and so we have to really be careful. Um, what about prophecy? How do you handle prophecy? Do prophets speak about what's happening in their immediate world, but also implied meaning in the future? So you kind of get both with prophets? Actually, yeah. You know, Jeremiah, what did he prophesy? Babylon is coming. Repent. Babylon is coming. Yeah. Um, you, you get the teaching of Revelation where there's prophecy. Judgment's coming. Judgment's coming. So we have to learn to see things in context. Let's practice good interpretation of Scripture. All right? So everybody turn to Isaiah 6. Okay? Now, if you look, um, uh, you just do a quick scan of chapter 3. You, got, you have this problem of, of uh, leaders, ungodly, wicked leaders that are, that are having a harmful influence on Israel. God's judgment is coming. Chapter 5 is this big parable, this big story of Israel as like a vineyard. And God tended the vineyard, and the vineyard did not produce any fruit at all. And so the owner finally decided to tear it down and start over. That parable is literally what Jesus used in Matthew 21. So we, when you look at the first few chapters of Isaiah, it's about coming judgment, coming judgment. All right, look at chapter 5. Look at verse 8. It says, Woe to those who attach house to house, join field to field. 11. Woe to those who rise early in the morning to pursue strong drink, intoxicating drink. And then you get 18. Woe to those who drag wrongdoing with cords of deceit. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. And you get woe after woe after woe. All right? Remember the Hebrew... Hoy, oi, uh, and it means this is bad, shock. Oh, the shock of it all, this is bad. Something terrible is going to happen to the people who disobey God. All right, so that's this backdrop. Now you get into chapter 6. It says, in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. 
Seraphim. Seraphim. Im means plural, more than one. Seraphim were standing above him, each having six wings. With two, each covered his face, and with two, each covered his feet, and with two, each flew. And one called out to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, woe. Woe to me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of armies. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. And your guilt is taken away, and atonement is made for your sin. Wow, what a scene in heaven. Now, when you read that and you, or you hear that, what's your, what do you think? Is this, is this a text of scripture designed to teach us about worship? And you can hear the, the songs about holy, holy, holy. Lord God Almighty, early in the morning our songs shall rise to thee. You know, all those things. How does this strike you? Remember your hermeneutic? Context is everything. What's going on here? In chapter 6, 1 to 7, what's happening? Remember, the prophet has announced six woes on uh, the wicked, on Jerusalem, on on. Judah on all of Israel. So what do you think is happening? Lord of armies, Lord of host. Lord of host or armies, yeah. So is it possible that it's also like a, a type and shadow of the atonement, Jesus' atonement? As far as like, because, you know, he, he's not, he's, he says he's unclean, I say, amidst that, and then the, there's a burning going out. Yes, yeah. Is that a to that? Or? Yeah, so um, th- that is called a dual dualism, where something is said that has meaning on two different levels at the same time. And we're going to actually get to that in chapter 7, this dualism. But you're on to something. Sure, this is good. Um, So what you said at first, Kathy, is actually, this is the direction we need to go. He just announced six woes on wicked Israel. Listen closely. The holy, the righteous, the pure, the godly Isaiah announced six woes on Israel for all their disobedience. When Isaiah stands in front of God, what does Isaiah say about himself? He's, like, he's still like them. 
In other words, he's messed up too. In other words, even the prophet, even God's choice servant, the prophet, when exposed to God, is exposed as being evil, just like everybody else. Just like it was said that no one is righteous, no, not one. None, no, not one. Yeah. And this is one of the reasons why uh, the, the, Paul loves to quote from Isaiah. So what's fascinating is Isaiah is willing to do what Israel is not willing to do, and that is what? Repent. He repents. This is an example. In other words, Isaiah is actually modeling what Israel should do. That if you could see God and get God for who he really is and how holy he is, three times holy, you know, kadosh, kadosh, kadosh. If you could get how holy he is, you'd repent too. It's also amazing how, how much of a amazing blessing that Isaiah got to be in the presence that close. Yes, yes. And, um, uh, of course, there's arguments on what he's really saying, you know, because no man can see the Lord and live. And so there, there's challenges there. But I want you to get, if we're going to do context, you've got to get this. Uh, Kathy, God is holy. God has a right to, to judge Israel. Okay. And anyone who stands before God is exposed as being unholy. But what does I do? Isaiah do? He does what no one else is willing to do. Repent. Yeah. In fact, if you recall 1 John 1, 9, um, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you remember, do you remember what the word confession means? Do you remember? It literally means, it's hamalageo. It means say the same words. If we say the same things about our sin that God says about our sins, God calls that confession. It's when we backpedal and try to lie and, and deceive about it that God says that is not repentance. So Isaiah, the holy prophet, when exposed to God, is proven unholy, and he models what Israel should do. Repent. And they're not and you'll see the comment about why that is such a big deal. All right, so a couple comments that are interesting. Um, seraph, plural, seraphim. Do you know what it means in Hebrew, anybody? Kind of dust that one off. It refers to a fiery serpent. Fiery serpent. The root word in seraph means to burn, all right? So... Um, can you catch, I want you to catch this imagery. You've got these burning like creatures, glowing. Imagine they're glowing. Burning like creatures, perhaps elongated bodies. Why? Well, they've got three sets of wings for one. All right. And then you have um, smoke. What does smoke imply? Fire. So there's incense, there's smoke in the temple. And you have these glowing, burning creatures. And then even these glowing, burning creatures, in compared to the light and radiance of God, they, they still are covering their faces. And then you have this light fire imagery of one of the burning creatures, the glowing creatures, flies over, grabs a burning, burning coal. Now, there it is again, 
a burning coal, almost a play on words. The burning, fiery creature grabs a burning, fiery object with tongs and takes it to Isaiah, touches it to his lips, and announces that guilt is taken away and atonement uh, is made for your sin. So you get this language of fire. It's fascinating. Turn back to chapter 4. Look at this. Um, This is chapter 4. Look at verse 4. When the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the bloodshed of Jerusalem from her midst by the spirit of judgment and the spirit of burning. Then the Lord will create over the entire area of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the brightness of a flaming fire by night. All for over all the glory will be a canopy. So you get this this imagery. There's a lot of light and a lot of fire and a lot of burning. And this is why the prophets in the Old Testament say that when God comes, it's a judgment of fire. What did Paul say in 1 Corinthians 3? What's going to happen to our works? Burned. And what happens with a wood hand stubble? It's just, it just goes quickly. But it's the precious things, the stuff of eternal value that is cleansed and purged by fire. So what's going on when, when you say God is holy, holy, holy? You're saying righteous burning judgment. The holiness of God is raw authority that is like a fiery judgment. Fire, 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 judgment, 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 because God is holy, holy, holy. Does this make sense? Okay, so this is really intense language, you know. This is not necessarily about, let's get our guitars out and make up a real cool song about when we see God, we just got to talk about how holy it is and how he loves us and it's beautiful. No, it's like, if you saw what he's like, you would be terrified. And there would be burning fire and there would be crushing, uh, a crushing sense of the authority of God. So, and the very thing he announced on Israel, he announces to himself, Oi, woe to me, for I am ruined. To see God is to be ruined by God and his authority. All right, so now that he's clean, verse 7 and verse 8, this is really beautiful. Then Isaiah says, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. And verse nine, and so he said, go and tell this people. Remember the people that refused to repent. And so Isaiah models what you should do when you see God. They refused to do. And so look at the prophetic announcement. You keep on listening, Israel, but don't understand. You keep on looking, but you do not gain knowledge. Make the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes blind, so that they will not see with their eyes and ears, or hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. That's the point. Israel will not repent. And these are the prophetic descriptors about an entire nation that won't repent. But when Isaiah saw God, 
He turned and he was healed. He repented. All right, uh, one little thing. Pay attention. What do you do with verse 8? The last word in verse 8. How does that strike you? And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Who's the us? Thank you. This is the language that you find right out of Genesis 1, 26 and also out of chapter 3, verse 22. Let us make man in our image. And so he, he did. And he made them male and female in his image. Verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 22. Uh, Look, man has become like us. They know good and evil. This is after the fall and and. A new set of things kick in, and of course Cain uh, kills Abel in chapter 4. So you have, uh, in Hebrew, Amy, this is called a plural of majesty. God is expressed in more than one person. And so you see God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, already right out of the Old Testament. Beautiful. And um, his commission, let's keep going here. Um, uh, it's harsh language. God says, there is, a, there is a burning, the fire is coming, and it will not stop. And uh, verse, verse 13, yet uh, will still be a tenth portion in it, and it will again be subject to burning like the terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is cut down. The holy seed is its stump. That's a promise of um, what's called a remnant that God will restore. All right, I'm about to test your metal. Get ready. This is beautiful language. So chapter 7, war against Jerusalem. Enemies are coming from the north, and it's going to be horrible, more burning language. Verse 4, take care and be calm. Have no fear and do not be faint-hearted because of these two stumps of smoldering logs on the count of the fierce anger of Razin and Aram, the son of Ramalia. And again, judgment's coming, judgment's coming. Look at verse 10. And, you, and I'm going to test you on this. Ready? As, as is Isaiah's great gift, he can say the harshest, most disturbing things, language judgment, and then he will bring the sweetest, most beautiful language of hope. It, right side by side. So look at 10. The Lord spoke again to Ahaz. Who is Ahaz? Yes, the wicked, wicked king. His wife is Jezebel. So the Lord spoke to Ahaz saying, Ask for a sign for yourself and the Lord, your God. Make it as deep as hell, as deep as Sheol, or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I put the Lord to the test. Sounds like he's such a holy man, doesn't it? It's just the opposite. Then he said, listen now, house of David. Is it too trivial a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will try the patience of my God as well? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. And she will name him Emmanuel. 
He will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. For before the boy knows enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be abandoned. You ready, scholars? Who is the boy who will be born of this virgin? What's that? (laughs) Okay. What's that? (laughs) Remember context? What are you going to do with verse 16? If that's the case, Kathy, and I'm intentionally provoking you guys to think, okay, that's my point. It's my job. For before the boy, whoever this boy is, before this boy knows enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be abandoned. So is Isaiah speaking prophetically of the very near, near future, as in days, weeks, a year out? Or is he talking about what happened in Bethlehem, you know, in 4 BC when Jesus was born? Well, yes, and I really think that is the answer. It's both. But so, so if we could go with the first intent of the author, whoever this boy is, he's going to be born at a time when the two kings that you dread are going to be gone. The, the, the thing you worry about is not going to happen. Who are those two kings is the question. Remember context. Always read context. Always. What's the heading of the beginning of chapter 8? That's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, well, the, uh, when you get to chapter 8, it talks about Damascus and Samaria will fall. The nations that you dread are going to fall. Now, if that links up with verse 16, then the boy probably is, Amy, Macher Shalal Chashbaz. Just put a little phlegm in there and you've got your speaking Hebrew. Yeah. That's probably the boy. His name in Hebrew means. God will go after the spoil as a predator attacks prey. God will be swift to judge is what his name means. God is swift. He's saying, I will judge you, Israel, and I will judge your enemies. That's what it means. Welcome to the world of biblical studies and how challenging it is. Amy, the answer is yes. Historically, in Isaiah's world where a wicked king exists, Isaiah's wife 
will bring forth a son named Maher Shalal Hashbaz. And he will be the one that will help to deliver Israel in, in repentance. All right? He's going to be at God's... God with us through, through the Son. Now, the, hey, welcome to the tension of interpreting Scripture. But is it possible to say two things at the same time? Dualism. Prophecy. Yes. And so Isaiah, in the authority of the Spirit, is referencing, yes, God knows what's happening with you, Israel, and I know you fear your enemies. I'm going to judge them swiftly. A, bo- a child will be born, right? But then we also know at the same time that this is a far ahead future prophetic announcement that a virgin named Mary will give birth to a son and his name will be Jesus. It's both. It's both. That kind of goes on the whole idea of God's time is not like our time. God's time is not like our time. Isaiah 55, his ways are not our ways. Yeah. So... Does this make sense? Yeah. No. <laughs> well, I'll tell you why I'm thinking that. I mean, I'm sure it does. In my mind, it's not making sense. Because I've never heard about Isaiah having a son. Yes. Because I don't see that. Because it starts with 14 about a virgin to be in your birth. I mean, this is, you know, Christmas yeah. scripture all over the place. Yeah. And then even before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, that can still even refer to Jesus because he comes to the age of accountability. Where, you know, he doesn't go into the temple and do his teaching. He's 12, right? Right. So, but where does it say that Isaiah, has, this is about Isaiah's son as well? Chapter 8. Then the Lord said to me, take for yourself a large tablet and write on it in ordinary letters, Maher Shalal Hashbaz, and I will take to myself Faithful witnesses, the testimony of Uriah, the priest, and Zachariah, the son of Jeberachiah. So I approached the prophetess. That's what his wife's name is. That's all we know about her. Yep, that's chapter 8. The prophetess. And (laughs) And she will conceive and give birth to a son. Then the Lord said to me, name him, Maher Shalal Hashbaz, for the boy, for before the boy knows how to cry out, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoils of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. Most likely, most, and it's a mystery. Listen, a lot of ink has been spilled over the centuries about who this boy is. All right. That, that is true. So it is probable that that son who's going to bring the presence of God to help lead Israel in repentance is Isaiah's son. All right. But remember, the Holy Spirit can give teaching and truth and talk on two levels at the same time. He can address the issue of Samaria and Damascus and being afraid of them. And God says, don't worry about it. I got them. The, you want to know who to worry? You worry about me because the big enemy is Syria is going to come down and get them. God, they're going to take, take them out. Don't worry about them. You know, and then a whole other issue said, in, you need to worry about Assyria because they're going to really be my, my servants and judge you because you won't repent. So, but that's getting deeper into the chapter. How can you be married and be a virgin? 
Yeah. Yeah, Amar in Hebrew, I know it's tough. Amar in Hebrew, it's a difficult word to translate. Yeah, so, by the way, don't... Yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so I need you to hear me well. I hold to the doctrine of the virgin birth. Okay. Uh, period. All right. Done. That's Luke 2, that, or Luke 1 and 2, and Matthew 1 and 2. But in Hebrew, uh, in, in Isaiah 7, the term for virgin that's most commonly used which would be an unmarried woman, is not the term that's used here, right? So uh, it is possible that that term could be translated a woman who's never given birth to a child. Yeah. 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 Now, because I say that does not deconstruct the virgin birth of Jesus. That's a separate issue. I'm saying right here in this text, in context, that I'm handling scripture in a reasonable way. Um, so historically, this immediately points to God is raising up someone under the failed leadership of Ahaz, okay? A king who would not repent. By the way, um, I don't know that this will apply to us. Maybe it will. You know, when God's, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz saying, ask for a sign. Make it, make it as big as you can, to the lowest place in Sheol, to the highest. Of, ask me something big. Come on, I want you to do this. Um, if God says that to you, what do you think we should do? Do it. God says, ask me for a sign. Come on. You obey God, right? What does Ahaz do? What does he say? Oh, no, 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 no. I don't put you to the test. No, 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 no. It's like he is using religion as a way to disobey God. That's, he's not showing God respect. He's showing that he's faithless when, when Ahaz says that. If he was like Hosea, you would ask for something big. You know, there's a story in the Old Testament about one of the kings and one of the leaders and uh, the prophet comes and says, tell you what I want you to do. You got a bundle of arrows? Yep. He said, I want you to take them and smack the ground. And so he goes, okay. And he goes, smack, smack, smack. And the prophet goes, ah, oh, you're only going to have three victories now. You know, if you'd only known, you had faith and listened to me. And so it's as though he should have taken his arrows and go, whack, 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 and just keep hitting the ground and keep hitting and not stopping that that would be the faithful thing to do. But the prophet goes, ah, now you're only going to have three little victories. You know? So listen, if God says ask for something big, you ask. And this is using religion to disobey God. And so Ahaz said, oh, no, no, I don't want to put you to the test. Well, he's a, he's, a, he's a pagan worshiper. He's an evil king. So he uses religion to disobey God. And God says, <laughs> I'm going to give you a sign whether you ask for it or not. Behold, the virgin will conceive and bring forth a son. So you know what's amazing? What this does for me? Because I battle discouragement. Man, I, depression and anxiety, I know those two guys. And I have to resist these things, and it's hard. God gives hope even among disobedience. 
even when this, like, like our nation, this is the political mess that we're in, and there's a wicked king. I don't care who you think the wicked king is. It doesn't matter. Wicked politicians. God is sovereign over politicians, over nations. Even when we're struggle and we, we struggle and we're not sure. Even when asks us, when God asks us to show faith, and we're not really sure how to do that, and we struggle. Whether it's because we're faithless, we're afraid, or we're cowards, or a variety of reasons, right? God is Lord. Look at look at chapter seven, verse eighteen. On that day, the Lord will whistle for the fly that is in the remotest parts of the canals of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. But it sounds like Egypt and the ten plagues, doesn't it? Can you imagine going, and then all of a sudden millions of bees and flies go, did you hear what God said? Let's go. This giant cloud of insects starts moving in. God says, hey, I can call the, the animals do a better job at obeying than the humans do. Even a fly and a bee know how to obey God when God whistles for them. Come on, let's go. Bring judgment. God did the very same thing to Egypt. The plague of of, uh, flies and the frogs and all these things. In fact, you you see this, that God commands the animals uh, in uh, Genesis chapter 7 when Noah and, and his sons built the boat and then God causes a supernatural migratory instinct and the animals went inside the ark, which would be an unnatural thing for them to do. So truly amazing. Uh, judgment language, chapter 8. Judgment language, Damascus, Samaria will fall and God will raise up this boy. And then look at, uh, drop down to verse 9, uh, a believing remnant uh, even in the midst of all the judgment against Jerusalem and against Judah, it says, be broken, you peoples, and be shattered, and listen, all remote places of the earth. By the way, that's a good description of repentance, to be broken and to listen. Listen. Verse 11, for the Lord spoke to me with mighty power and instructed me not to walk in the way of this people saying, you are not to say, it's a conspiracy regarding everything that this people calls a conspiracy. And you are not to fear what they fear or be in dread of it. It is the Lord of armies, the Lord of hosts, whom you are to regard as holy. And he shall be your fear and he shall be your dread. Then he will become a sanctuary. But to both houses of Israel, he will be a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense and a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Many will stumble over them. Then they will fall and be broken. They will be snared and caught. Bind up the testimony. Seal the law among my disciples. Pause for just a second there. A lot of conspiracy theories going on right now in the political world, right? Lots and lots. God is saying to Isaiah, 
Don't get caught up in the conspiracy theories. Don't do that. You want to know who to fear? Fear me. Don't be afraid of Damascus. Don't be afraid of Samaria. Don't be afraid of the Assyrians. You fear me. And if you fear me, I'm going to be like a sanctuary. I'll be your safe place. But you got to fear me. Yeah. Now, all right, let's test your knowledge. Verse 14 and 15, chapter 8, 14 and 15. There's a prophetic word. What is it? You should know this. What's the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense? Jesus. Yes. He's the cornerstone. Yeah. Judgment, the stone of judgment. People are going to come. They think, they think they're going to try to take matters in their own hands or go after God, but they trip over Jesus en route. And the stone will crush them to dust. Yeah. Uh, look at verse 18. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me, that includes Maher Shalal Hashbaz, uh, are for signs and wonders in Israel. From the Lord of armies who dwells in Mount Zion. When they say to you, consult the mediums, watch this, the mediums. Israel is going to tell Isaiah, hey, you need to consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter. Should a people not consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? No. Isaiah, don't do that. Israel, don't do that. That's false teaching. When you go to cultic leaders and pagan religions, it's false. Don't do that. You want to get truth, you go to the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak in accordance with this word, it is because they have no dawn. They have no dawn. In other words, and I had this conversation with someone today. You can get counsel, whether it's psychological counsel or theological counsel, you can get it from nuts, from crazy people and crazy denominations, and they can make up all kinds of religious psychobabble. But if you can't square it with Scripture, if you can't square it with the law and the testimony of the Lord, then it is false teaching and you reject it. Do you understand? If you can't base your belief on Scripture then it is false teaching and you do not uh, embrace it because it has no dawn. There's no life in it. So, all right, uh, we'll, we'll stop there. And next, um, next time we'll look at chapter nine, which is the, the birth and reign of the Prince of Peace, which is absolutely, absolutely beautiful. So Paul writes, uh, uh, what I have received, I pass on to you. The night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Take and eat, all of you. In like manner, after supper, he took the cup and said, this is the new covenant in my blood. It's poured out for you. Take and drink, all of you. And then Paul adds, for as long as you take and eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I want you to appreciate that when you take the bread in the cup tonight, you were the one who did not stumble over the cornerstone. You were not crushed by the rock of offense. You were not ashamed of Jesus.
Abba Father, thank you for the grace that you give. Thank you that you have chosen to show your mercy and kindness to us through your son, Jesus. Thank you for these things. You are our rock. Have mercy on us, O God, according to steadfast love. We love you in Jesus' name, amen.